Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm, and I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Thanks, BJ. <laughs> what, a be- what a great way to start our 75th Delta Dispatches episode. Sure, 75th, sure. I promise, I fact-checked, I double-triple-checked, I counted on spreadsheets today. It is the 75th. Very nice. Until okay. further notice. 75 but, it is. So is that like silver, platinum? What, I mean, that's like a, we'll have to figure that out. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe our, maybe, uh, our guests might know. But um, how are you, Simone? It's been a busy week for you. It has, it has been. It always seems like the week before holiday is always very busy. Cram everything in. Yeah, I went down to the uh, Port Fouchon today um, to their uh, monthly meeting. I had to tell my very good friend, Joni Tuck, goodbye. Uh, she's leaving the port after about five years oh. or so, but it was it was a good day. She's on to green, green pastures. Well, you know, they are so um, lucky to have had her. I she agree. was such an amazing asset and, I, and we wish her the best in her future endeavors. Hopefully we can have her back to catch up. I agree. That would be so much fun. Yes. Well, today, in case you didn't know, is America's Recycle Day. Yes. Yeah, and there were some really great segments on Fox 8 this morning. Christy Trail, who we've had on the show with Lake Pontchartrain Basin Christy. Foundation, mm-hmm. was on the, on the show with her daughter, Madeline, oh. and they were talking about ways that you can recycle really to keep plastic out of our waters, out of our lakes, um, which is very important. And then, of course, our dear friend, uh, Jimmy Frederick. It was his birthday this it, week. It was his birthday, mm-hmm. yes. And he was on with um, one of the women who started the Two Girls, One Shuck Oyster Shucking Ooh, Company. careful saying that. I know. And, uh, you know, um, they were just talking about their great oyster shell recycling program. And they actually just announced that Arno's is, has oh, joined. great. Right. That's great. Um, Christy is actually also going to be at Jefferson Parish's Coastal 101, which we're hosting tonight after the show. Yeah. Um, she's going to be there uh, to kind of open the show and be MC. That's so, great. great. And I, I, I did see that's um, awesome. You know, we've had Lauren Avril on the show before and really emphasizing Jefferson Parish. I mean, what is it? The largest landmass parish in the sure. metro area or population or one of those. But if you it's think big. about the where it stretches, you know, from Lake Pontchartrain all the way down to Grand Isle, so it's diverse. huge and so right. diverse. And so this one's actually going to be in Metairie? Yes, it's going to be uh, at Pontiff Park um, at their Golden Age Center there. Uh, and we're looking forward to a great crowd. And we think this is going to be hopefully the first engagement of many. And they had some great news uh, recently about some they restoration did. that's going to happen on the lakefront. They did. They did. It, it looked like near, this. Near Dini's. Exactly. They secured a plan. In Arno's. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just thinking about food. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> they secured a planning grant from NIFWIF, and hopefully Lauren will talk about that tonight, and we'll see more about it in the future, but that was the good news in yesterday's paper. Awesome. Well, speaking of oysters and food, um, today we're talking oysters, and we're talking about the past of oysters in Louisiana, the future of oysters. So um, we're so excited to have our first guest on, um, Richard Condry, who is a former professor um, in LSU's Department of Oceanography and Coastal Sciences, um, Coastal Fisheries Institute. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Richard. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Richard, is this your first uh, radio show? Because um, it's our first radio show. So. Uh, <laughs> yes. Good, good. Well, we're happy to have you on. So, Richard, tell us a little bit about um, your background. You were at LSU, but you also received a Ph.D. in fisheries at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, give us a little bit of your, your, your background. Well, my formal background is in ecology, population dynamics, and management of estuarine animals and plants, with an emphasis on shrimp and oysters. The focus of my research was really where it was needed by the state at the time, 
included shrimp, sea turtles, coastal plants, redfish, spotted sea trout, menhaden, sharks, dolphins, seabirds, paddlefish, and blue crabs. Wow, so that is certainly uh, no, uh, not a not the a small hits. topic. The greatest hits yeah, exactly. of Louisiana. And and you know, doing getting your PhD in Seattle, I mean, the fisheries there must be quite different than here. I mean, do you, do you find similarities, or in terms of the, some of the challenges, or can you paint a picture of how you know maybe Pacific Coast fisheries might be different from our coast old fisheries here in Louisiana? Well, the fish that live in cold water, like those off Seattle, they normally grow slower, live longer, and reproduce later in life than fish that live in warm waters, like most of our fish. But they all taste good, especially if cooked (laughs) by somebody from Louisiana. Despite these differences, the challenges are similar. They all need clean, oxygen-rich water, a specific temperature range to grow in, good and abundant food, and a chance to grow, reproduce, and be part of the ecosystem before they're harvested. So we all need to take care of the fish so they can take care of us. That's great. And, you know, I, I, I Simone thought she could get away... Um, Never. <laughs> get away with uh, an episode without talking about birds. But, alas, you were very involved uh, in the Baton Rouge Audubon Society, one of our Audubon chapters here in Louisiana. So how long have you been involved with Brass, and, and why do you support the organization? Well... We've been involved, that's my wife and I, uh, since we signed up for a birding class with Jane Patterson back in around 2012. She's the current president of the Baton Rouge Audubon Society, uh, and everybody says that, you know, her excitement is contagious. As far as the Baton Rouge Audubon and Audubon in general, I, I love the people. Since they're all all focused on what's good for the birds, they're also focused on what's good for people, for the planet, and for the future. It's just a win-win situation. So it's getting to be that time of year. You're also involved in the annual Christmas bird count, right? Which is fast approaching. Yes, uh, I'm helping out with the Christmas bird count. I, it's a great great opportunity for people to to learn about birds um, if they're novices to go out with uh, and help experts uh, to have fun and to be an important part of history. It's, a, it's approaching 120 years of, of data collection by citizens, volunteers. That's amazing. And it's an amazing, um, amazing collection of data that provides uh, important information on trends. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, and we actually we did have Eric Johnson on to talk a little bit about that last episode, so you'll have to tune and I'm in. I'm sure we're going to talk about it again. <laughs> um, but, you know, we want to talk about what we're having you on today to talk about. So you and our next guest, uh, Natalie Snyder, um, published a paper in Shorn Beach entitled Using Louisiana's Coastal History to Innovate Its Coastal Future. Um, kind of a synopsis of the paper is available on our blog on deltadispatches.org. Um, but Richard, tell us a little bit about the focus of the paper and what made you want to research this topic. Well, the paper was Natalie's inspiration, and I was really pleased to contribute. Uh, Louisiana's coast currently lacks any natural hard structure to withstand the erosive forces of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Oyster reefs can provide that service. We wanted to show that that had worked in the past and how it might work in the future if we try to reverse some of the things we as people have done wrong. 
And, you know, Natalie is going to be on the show in a little bit to talk about kind of what that means for future plannings. But one of the aspects that you focus on in your blog is um, some of the lessons from the past. And so I was kind of fascinated to realize I didn't know that Louisiana, the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas, was right off of Louisiana's coast for a long time. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. when I first started researching the, the coast, concerned about coastal erosion, like a, a lot of coastal scientists, uh, I went back to the historic record and tried to read the uh, accounts of the early explorers and surveyors of the coast. And I kept coming across this uh, oyster reef, uh, an impediment to, to navigation. And uh, as it, as it as it evolved, it became more and more real, especially especially when I read Audubon's accounts. So where about would that have been located? It was off the Louisiana central coast hmm. uh, from Chenero Tigre in the west, eastward for about 100 miles oh, wow. to Last Island, and extended out into the Gulf of Mexico for some five to ten miles uh, all along that range. Its surface was normally under three to four feet of water, but it was visible when the water was low as when the winds would blow from the north and blow the water away from the shore. That's fascinating, Richard, and we definitely want to explore that reef with you a little bit more and talk about its history and its importance. We're about to head into a break, but if you'll hang on, we'll be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online deltadispatches.org I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress that has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore or Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, 
Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz um, from Restore Retreat. We're going to talk about birds. No, we're not. <laughs> We've covered birds in the first That's segment. That's all we talk about. Simone. Birds. Okay. Well, we're going to rename this to Bird Dispatches. Happy <laughs> Diamond Anniversary. Yes, BJ shot. was able to do a little digging and found that it was better than paper anniversary. Yeah, exactly. better than paper. <laughs> I think once you're with somebody for 75 times, you deserve time. Too bad it's not a pearl anniversary, right? Oh, we're talking yeah, about oysters, talking about oysters. So. I see what you did yeah. there. I see what you did there. Welcome back, Richard Condry from LSU. Um, we're talking, we were just talking about before the great the um, break, we're talking about the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas, talking about Louisiana, but we wanted to ask you a fun question. Um, Richard, well, I guess this is a two-parter. You eat oysters, yes? Yes. What is your favorite way to eat oysters? Well, it used to be raw. <laughs> no. uh, other than that, uh, oyster stew, uh, oyster mm. rockefeller. Mm. But, uh, what I found when I was in Seattle uh, was barbecuing uh, oysters mm. in, the, in the half shell. I know that's become popular now, and I, I really like it, I guess, best that way. Very Simone, good. maybe after the event in Metairie tonight, you can stop by Drago's and get mm-hmm. some char-grilled oysters. Char- yeah. So, Richard... You were talking about the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas, which was located off of southwestern kind of coastal Louisiana, stretching into maybe Chapalaya, Terrebonne Central, area. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, you mentioned Audubon in, in terms of John James Audubon. So is that how you kind of pieced together that there was this um, massive reef through historical writings? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I did a... a, a a bird calendar for the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuarine. Oh, I actually yeah. had that in my office for, for that for the year. That was yeah. a beautiful calendar, and it's available online for free. You can you can download it um, from Bitnep's website. The, the article um, researching the calendar, I came across this letter from Audubon that he wrote. Um, from near the the Atchafalaya River in 1837, he wrote it to a friend of his who published the letter in, in a journal, and he tells about um, encountering how difficult it was traveling through this this oyster reef uh, that lay off, which was the Great Barrier uh, Great Barrier Reef traveling through the reef because of the narrow channels and the, the steep sides and the danger on either side and the fact that, that all of the oysters, which as a Frenchman, you know, originally he loved, were, were dead. There were none to eat. And uh, suddenly uh, I, had a ta- I had a time frame. I knew the oyster reef had been there uh, from 1500 to 1807 and then it was gone. The next I had, account I had was from 1853, mm. and it was gone without a trace. And Audubon was the key that linked the past with with the present and pointed towards the future because he told me the oysters w- were gone, were dying, and uh, that perfectly fit in with the time frame. The, the reef, if it had died... Uh, by 1853, it would have been completely gone because the oysters uh, 
it would the oyster shells would have would have eroded. Mm-hmm. So, what happened to make it disappear so suddenly? Well, it appears based on the uh, there was there had to be a, a ground a supply of groundwater which fed underground springs. Oysters need around ten to twenty parts per thousand to to grow. Uh, once the in the in and in the offshore waters, our offshore waters, the salinities are thirty parts per thousand on up, and and they're lethal to the oysters because they bring in disease and predators. So these underground springs would have maintained the oysters, um, the salinities that the oysters needed. But the, what appears was that there was a, a real synergy between the oysters and the coast. Together they formed a bowl that uh, kept the, the salinity levels uh, at, a, at a mutually beneficial level of 10 to 20 parts per thousand. The oysters would prevent the, the gulf from rushing in to, to, the, to the inside of the bowl, and the coast would protect the northern face of the bowl. So it's kind of the perfect mix of, of good things to happen right then, and then when the mix got imbalanced, then then we lost the oysters. Absolutely, well said. Thank you very much. I wish I had said it that way. <laughs> when, no, no, I, I think that's the, fascinating. When, the, uh, when this synergy was there, it was the perfect balance. Once, uh, once the uh, something had happened to the the flow of groundwater into the system and the springs began to to lose some of their freshwater supply, the oysters would have succumbed to disease and predators. And so the southern face of the bowl, which faced the Gulf of Mexico, would have been cracked. Mm. You know, it's and inter- that would have led to more uh, salinity intrusion and a further destruction of the oyster reef. It, it's inter- but more importantly... That would have allowed the coast to be impacted by offshore storms and and by offshore salinities uh, and increased uh, coastal erosion way back in the 1830s. It took a defense away, right? Yeah, because yeah, it had that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking about that when I was reading your paper. I mean, it sounds like it was right offshore of our, you know, where now our Paul J. Rainey Wildlife Sanctuary is located in Vermilion Parish, and of course we have issues there with you know saltwater intrusion and interior marsh loss. And I wonder if that reef ha- served the purpose of protecting oh, yeah. that land yeah. and so much of our land. I think. Uh, Richard gave a great analogy about like the bull broke mm-hmm. um, and so that that allowed the conditions to change so that's a good way to say that I also think Richard's interesting I mean thinking about the lessons for today um, you know that balance between freshwater and saltwater in terms of oyster productivity and and you almost can't have too much saltwater right or you can't ha- I mean is that kind of one of the lessons that you learned as well that like sometimes it gets there's too much salt water even for oyster production well, yeah, I mean, ask any oysterman. They, they need just the right mix of fresh and salt water, and they need a fairly constant supply. From the work that I saw Earl Melanson do when he was, when I was fortunate to have him as a graduate student, uh, the, the oystermen were, were constantly trying to figure out, you know, not just what the salinity was now, but what would it be in, in a year or so, or, or six months or so. These, these changes in salinity can adversely affect the, the oysters. So they, 
this that massive reef, which really stretched, you know, it's it's a hundred miles. It was a hundred miles along the coast out for for five to ten miles out into the Gulf of Mexico. It covered the whole central coast of Louisiana. This reef required a massive, fairly continuous supply of of fresh water for it to exist for at least three hundred years, if if not more. So, Richard, back it up, back it up, back it up. Did you say Earl Melanson was your graduate student? Yeah, I was really <laughs> lucky enough to have Earl as a graduate That's great. student back years ago. <laughs> and and funny because now um, Earl also has bitnet ties. He's he's um, part of their foundation and, and those kinds of things. That's so interesting to know. What a small world. So what what are you working on these days? Uh, well, two things. I'm trying to finish up a paper uh, that presents the argument that our coast was has recently been gaining land at a rate of about uh, 0.8 football fields per hour since 2009, after losing land at a rate of uh, 1.5 football fields per hour since 1932. We, that land gain, we don't expect to be anything other than a transient artifact of a, of a current lack of hurricane impact on the coast, and we expect that once uh, hurricanes greater than Category 1 return to our coast, we'll again uh, witness catastrophic rates of loss. That, well, that well, will Richard, be We'll have to have you back on to talk about that, um, but thank you so much for you know being on the show, for talking birds, but also talking about um, your blog post and your paper. Um, Very Again, you can find it online at MississippiRiverDelta.org, and we'll be right back with Natalie Perrinan to talk about how the lessons of the past inform future planning. You're on the ASPN Network. Coastal news for the pelagic-minded. This is almost as fun as the song that BJ picks is almost as fun as our Coastal Stat of the Week. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. Yay! In honor of Joni Tuck's last day at Port Fouchon, Louisiana boasts five of the nation's 15 largest shipping ports by cargo volume, handling a fifth of all waterborne commerce in the United States. Over 500 million tons of cargo is moved on the lower Mississippi annually. That's for you, Joni. <laughs> Even though they're not a cargo port, but still, <laughs> thinking about her today. So welcome gonna, back that's gonna to be Delta like that, What do they call that earworm? That's going to be in my head. It's such, it's, I know. That was a good song. That's like, um, that could be Natalie Snyder's walk-up song. It is, Natalie, your walk-up song. Is that a, an acceptable walk-up song for you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's a, We should ask people what their walk-up song is. Who doesn't like a be? little Technotronic? I know. I know. You had to look up that it was Technotronic. I saw your face just now. You had to look that up. <laughs> welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Natalie. Hi, hi. Um, um, what has been going on since we last talked to you? Um, so, Have you been busy? Uh, Have you traveled? Oh. I know the answers to these. <laughs> well, I got two cats. Uh, you know, Jacques confused that my name's changed. So just <laughs> everybody know. Um, and then... Um, you going back to your Snyder one, roots. Snyder roots. And then one thing that um, is interesting is I just learned that Earl and I have something in common in that we were both graduate students 
Uh, oh, wow. Neat. Everything is so circular. It's so crazy. That's awesome. Very neat. Glad we could share something with you, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about the history of this uh, Great Barrier Reef of Louisiana with Richard. But from your tell us about, you know, from your perspective, why is it understand what why is it important to understand that history? Well, I think what Richard has done and the research he's done and and really kind of to understand the history of this enormous oyster reef off the coast of Louisiana. And he didn't mention it, but he has traveled to Europe to study surveys in Spain and other places. Um, to the explorers? Yeah, when they came back? Is that from the explorers? Going on in Louisiana. Yeah, cool. Very cool. Yeah, so he's yeah, deep into it. He's done extensive research. And, you know, the more I heard about it, the more I thought, you look at the 2017 Coastal Master Plan and you look at the landmass that we're, you know, facing and you think, how do we get that back? How do we get some sort of hardened protective structure back in the Gulf of Mexico? And so really that was kind of uh, the thought that provoked this article and this discussion is, can we rebuild the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas? Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about what that could look like. And, and you know, I know in your blog um, as well, which is kind of more of the, the forward-looking, you, you discussed that. One of the things in, the, in your paper that really struck me um, was a line, you know, when Audubon sailed from the Mississippi's Southwest Pass to Galveston Bay, Louisiana's still sparsely settled coast was beginning to erode. Passage between Louisiana's islands was no longer limited to pirogs. And you think, I mean, we when we talk about land loss, we focus so much on like what's happened in the 20th century, which is obviously, you know, so dramatic. But like to think that, you know, a lot of this kind of even started back then. I mean, what, what was happening at that time? And also, um, you know, like what, what was the benefit that these reefs provided to the coastline? So, I mean, our coast is obviously dynamic. It's always been dynamic. It's always been changing. Um, anybody who has a family who's lived for hundreds of years on this coast knows that they moved around a bit, that things were always shifting and changing um, because we live on a delta and um, we're a very adaptive, dynamic people. Uh, and so, what the reef did, though, is it really provided that protection to people. It provided the protection to the wetlands. It reduced wave action. It reduced storm surge. Uh, it protected the marshes from erosion. It protected the communities that were there from storm surge. And that's ultimately what we want to build back on our coast is the protection value that our coast can have for us. So, Natalie, is that why you call or that's what they say when they say oysters are ecosystem engineers? What is, tell us more about that phrase. Well, I think they say that they're ecosystem engineers because they can change the system, right? They, they change the way water moves and they build and grow and they can, you know, you can build a levee, which is, an engineered structure or you can have an oyster reef that grows and builds and provides that same protection. And so they're, they're really providing that service to us. In addition, these oyster reefs, these large oyster reefs would provide shells. So you always hear about these like shell middens and um, how there's shell in the marsh because the shells would be broken up and then they would add elevation to the marsh by being put 
up onto the marsh and help the marsh be resilient to these changes. And don't like kind of oyster reefs also help with from a water quality perspective? Absolutely. They filter the water. They filter the nutrients. Uh, they love it. They eat it up. It makes them good and hearty while also cleaning the water. So excellent at water quality. So Natalie, t- t- that idea of like recreating that barrier, can you walk us through the process of how one creates an artificial reef or, or what, what does that project look like and what does it entail? So the, the, the thought behind this is, is a little bit innovative and it's a little bit like unknown. And I, you know, we, we kind of think you look at these large areas of marsh that are going to be lost um, because of sea level rise and all the things that we're facing. And the thought was, how do we transition? If we're going to lose the marsh and there's a lot of things we can't do to change it, um, we're going to have to have a smaller delta. We're not going to be able to hang on to everything that we have. But could we transition that marsh to another habitat, such as this Great Barrier Oyster Reef that provides a protection value? And so the idea is if we start today, before, let's not wait, let's not get 20 years down into the future and then we don't have a choice. But if we could start building oyster reefs, laying the foundation for an oyster reef to grow, giving it the conditions that it needs to grow and build, and then as the marsh subsides and gets overwhelmed by sea level rise, this oyster reef just continues to grow and it replaces the marsh. Um, And this is only in in certain areas, but it can provide that protection barrier in areas that we're not going to be able to save the marsh anyway. Yeah, and it's so interesting in in your blog and in the paper, you talk about needing to plan for the coast of the future, not the coast of today. And I think that's kind of what you just articulated, right? That what we're seeing today is not going to exist in 20, 30 years. And so what does that future look like and how do we make the right choices now for that future? Absolutely. I mean, you can see that there's not enough money, there's not enough sediment, there's not enough resources to maintain the footprint of the coast we have today. So can we, and and I feel like exploring this oyster reef idea is a cost-effective way because it's, it's not a huge investment to start planting those oyster reefs today and letting them grow over time for the next 20 years. So when that marsh starts to be lost, you have this oyster reef to replace it. And you're putting it, you're not putting it on the marsh, you're putting it in the degraded open water areas around the marsh. And it just grows and coalesces together to form an oyster reef. Yeah, so you have to be strategic um, about where you even place those, right, Natalie? Right, you're not going to place it on the marsh. You're going to place it in the open water areas, the places that have already been lost. But then as the marsh is lost, it can grow and build into those areas. This is the kind of innovative thinking theory. Um, you know, we don't know for sure if this will work, but we think that knowing what Richard has done on his research on how you can have this balance between salt and fresh water and build this protective barrier, it's definitely worth exploring and investing in. 
I like that y'all have taken a look back, right? And that that's what history is good for, right? And so you can learn lessons from uh, what Richard has learned about the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas and, and apply it to the future. That's really what history is great about. Well, that's what... That e- so on your show, we've talked a lot about sediment diversions and the need to use the Mississippi River because that's Same looking to the history of the Mississippi River and how it built land and trying to use that to help our future. This is the same concept, but just looking at the history of oyster reefs and how can we use that to help build a sustainable future. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point about him traveling to yeah. Europe to kind of find these accounts of early, yeah, you know, explorers. Cool. It's so, so fascinating. Um, well, Natalie, we're about to head into a break, but I want to talk to you more about kind of uh, what we've been discussing about planning for the future as well as some of the other work you're doing. Um, we'll be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online at deltadispatches.org. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. I'm sad to say that my co-host and partner in crime finally had enough of the birds, and she's left me. No, she's actually gone to uh, the event we were discussing in Metairie tonight, so uh, I excused her for the last segment, but um, she did tell me she's listening from her car. So, hi, Simone. Um, So, Natalie, now we can talk to her about Simone. Oh, yeah. What you got? What you got? Well, I guess I got, I, well, we'll save that for after the show, but I do have a fun question for you. Um, sure. So, same as Richard, what is your favorite way to eat oysters? Oh, char grilled. I mean, you know, I can't do anything but char grilled. I mean, I can do anything, but like char grilled is definitely the best way to go with the garlic and the butter. Some nice French bread, maybe to dip it, to get the yeah. left. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. I, I don't know. I'm more of a raw, you know, raw with uh, horseradish and all that. But I do love char grilled, so I, I'll eat any kind of oysters. But speaking of, we highlighted this at the beginning of the show, but, um, you know, C- Jimmy Frederick, our friend at Coalition North Shore Coast Louisiana, was on Fox 8 this morning, and they were talking about the oyster shell recycling program because today is America's Recycling Day. Um do you know that they have deployed or, you know, used 4,000 tons of shell in the last four years? That They've recovered that amount from uh, Louisiana restaurants. I am so proud of them. So I actually used to work for CRCL. And um, at the time, the, the shell recycling program was just an idea. Um, I left and the people there have thrived and I'm so proud of them for building the biggest recycling program in the country for oyster shell. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And I know they're just going to keep it going. Yeah, it's, it is, it is really incredible. And just in terms of the both, I mean, you know, obviously in terms of the benefits, like they've deployed a reef and Biloxi Marsh and they're planning another one, but also like just in terms of the engagement, I mean, you think about how many people are coming to New Orleans restaurants and eating oysters and then, Hey, like some of the top restaurants in the city are, you know, recycling and getting involved in the issue. So that's also really cool. Yeah. And if there's any restaurant out there that's not recycling their shell, 
get in touch with CRCL, get a part of the program because don't put any more shell in the landfill. It all needs to go back into our coast. Yeah. And a plug. So they are hosting two volunteer events where you can go help them um, bag oyster shells for an artificial reef. And those are on December 1st and 15th in Buras. Um, you can go to crcl.org to learn more and, you know, get help the shells get back where they need to be. So shifting gears a little bit. So that's exciting. I mean, so in terms of planning for, you know, oyster reefs, um, you know, what, obviously, I, some people I've experienced it doing the CRCL volunteer event where you go and kind of you, you bag the shells and then they build a reef from that. But on a larger scale, like what could, what does that look like in terms of actually designing an artificial reef? Well, it's the start of one. And so what we're trying to do in some of these areas is build bigger reefs. And if you can, as a volunteer, go out and you bag some shell and, and they go and they put it out and they build this, what you think is a small reef. What you don't understand is that those reefs will grow and grow and grow and grow over the next coming decades and hopefully provide more and more benefits to the marsh as far as reducing erosion and wave action and the communities that live behind the marsh and protecting from storm surge. So it's incredibly important to recycle the shell and to get out there and volunteer to make sure that these oyster shell reef programs happen. Well, that's a great plug. And again, you can go to crcl.org to learn more and get involved. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, Natalie, recently you were in Galveston at the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association Summit. You presented on adaptive management. I know a, a topic that you do a lot of work on and are very passionate about. So can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview about on what you presented there? Well, so just to uh, kind of backtrack a little bit on what is adaptive management. Yeah, I think um, I, I want to ask you <laughs> to explain adaptive management as if you're talking to someone's mama over Thanksgiving uh, dinner and and you have to explain what um, what adaptive management is. And, and since Simone's listening, we're having chicken and sausage gumbo with a potato salad in the gumbo. Okay. All right. All right. So what I would say to that is, all right, uh, we all have our mamas and guess what? They, they, they make this gumbo. They've made it for 30 years. When they started, they started with a recipe and they said, I think this is going to work. And I think this is going to taste good 30 years ago, but they make it the one time and then they taste it and they get feedback from their family. It says, ah, it needs, you know, more filet or less, you know, more mustardy potato salad or whatever it is. And so they learn, and over time, they adjust. They learn and adjust the recipe over time to now, 30 years later, mom's recipe, and you ask her, can I have your recipe? She goes, I don't know what it is. I just make it, right? I just, I just do it. It comes natural, but yeah. It comes natural. But she's learned over time. She's taken in feedback. She's learned and adjusted her recipe over time, and that's what adaptive management is. It really is thinking about the projects we're doing, the coast, and saying, okay, we're going to try this, and we're going to get feedback. We're going to get feedback from the system. How did it work? Okay, it worked well. Let's keep doing that. Let's try this too. Or well, that didn't work so well. You know, nobody liked when, you know, I used the cheap sausage from the grocery store. I got to get the, the good stuff. So... 
I'm going to adjust and, and move on. So it's actually kind of a perfect uh, analogy to how adaptive management works on our coast. We're going to try things, we're going to learn, and we're going to adjust over time. I love, love, love that analogy. And I, I see a cooking demo in our future. I think we all can relate to having, you know, mama's gumbo compared to someone who's on their first time. No offense, you should start somewhere. But yeah, that is an amazing analogy for adaptive management. So how did, um, how was your presentation received in Galveston? Oh, it's great. Um, uh, Galveston is, is a, a sister area to Louisiana as far as what they're dealing with um, and, you know, experiencing Harvey and uh, the hurricanes that they've had over decades. Um, and so they really have the same experiences as Louisiana, and it's important to learn from these sister cities of how we address these issues and adapt to these issues. But I will say one interesting thing, I was over there for Halloween and I did not know. So they had the, the huge 1900 storm of Galveston, which was like their big one. And it, it really was the most deadliest storm that we've had in the, the U S still to date. Wow. Um, and I was over there at Halloween and they said that there's still, that's, it's one of the most haunted places in the U S because of the spirits that are still there from wow. the 1900 storm that come out in bad weather. So that's crazy. And I mean, it just goes to show how, I mean, even here, certainly there's that folklore and that kind of legend of the environment and these experiences, which were, I mean, really tragic, but they, it lives on and it kind of lives in people's minds and cultures. So that, that's a really cool story to, to hear. Well, yeah. I know, and I mean, speaking of that, um, you, you talk a little bit about, you did a blog recently for um, Environmental Defense Fund's Growing Returns. I want to talk about that maybe at a future episode because we're almost out of time, but really briefly, you know, what lessons can we learn from our from understanding our coast and monitoring our coast to help against flooding? Well, Louisiana has a state-of-the-art monitoring system and they're investing even more in it. So we are a world leader in how we monitor what's happening on our coast. And so all of that information, as we said, is how we're going to learn how to do it better. It's gathering the information, learning how to protect ourselves from flooding, making better decisions, investing better. Um, all of that will help us. But we are a world leader in how we monitor the health of our coast. Well, I can't wait to talk more about that in a future episode as well as adaptive management. But next time you're in New Orleans, you and I are adaptively managing a gumbo together. That sounds great. <laughs> well, Natalie Snyder with Environmental Defense Fund, thank you so much for being on, as well as Richard Condry with LSU. Always great to talk about our history, our past, and how that can shape our future. Um, thank you for listening to Delta Dispatches. Shout out to my partner in crime, Simone Malaz. Have a great event tonight. And we'll see you, and we won't see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving, but we'll be back after. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. See you later.